We've seen plague, brutality, protest, murder hornets, locusts, wayward asteroids, and unemployment numbers unseen for generations. So who do we look to in a time of crisis? What do we need to hear? Why are some leaders effective in getting the public to respond while others fail miserably? How do you get the word out? And what are the key concepts and best practices of crisis communications? So it's really about trusted leadership, coherent leadership as well. And it's also about leadership that will get everybody on board. And that's something that was especially prevalent in the United States during COVID-19 health emergency. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Vincent Renault about the rules of crisis communications. Dr. Vincent Renault, welcome to Campus on the Common. Now, you're an expert in crisis communications, amongst many other things. Could you give us an example of what is crisis communication and how is this affecting our lives today? Sure. So crisis communication is a really interesting discipline, actually, that's especially of interest these days with the, the current virus. So crisis communication pretty much kicks in at any point in time in the communication cycle. So usually people, for example, if you are the leader of an organization, you will be engaging in crisis communication throughout the cycle of that organization. For example, before even a crisis emerges, you are always scanning the environment, making sure that your organization is aware of its surroundings and making sure that whatever comes the way of the organization, you're able, you're able to react to it. Obviously, there's the crisis itself, so the crisis can come about and for the organization to make substantial changes to its operations. And the crisis will oftentimes disrupt in a severe way the way in which the organization operates. And then there's the post-crisis phase, so when the crisis comes to an end, because a crisis always comes to an end, then the organization can adapt. If the organization obviously survived the crisis, then the organization can adapt its, its operations and learn from its experience going through the crisis and hopefully adapt its activities in order to be better down the road. Could you give us an example of crisis communication, something that today's viewers might have picked up just while watching TV? Sure. Well, I think everybody knows about the COVID-19 health emergency. So the COVID-19 health emergency is a great example of crisis because obviously it affected not only you know the U.S. government, but governments across the world, but also private companies, right? So anywhere around the world, people had to contend with this crisis, especially you know even families at some point had to engage in some form of crisis communication in order to to, to weather this crisis. What I really find interesting about the COVID-19 crisis is that it really, to some degree, uh, forced everybody to go to the crisis communication cycle. So obviously. A crisis defines itself in different ways. The first point is obviously the notion of uncertainty. And what I find really interesting about this is that the COVID-19 health emergency is a great example of uncertainty. For the longest time, people were really not aware of what the virus was all about. For example, for a long time, people were not sure about what the symptoms were. People were not sure about the impact on the, on the body. People were not sure about the death rate. People were not too sure how the virus was spreading as well. And this level of uncertainty has a huge impact on the behavior of people. I'll give you an example. So everybody will probably remember in the first few days of the crisis, grocery stores have started running out of bleach and running out of toilet paper. What is interesting is obviously uh, toilet paper is not a central component of what 
this crisis is all about. Because people were so uncertain about what was happening that they rushed to the store and they grabbed everything they could grab. And as the crisis was evolving, this level of uncertainty was driving people to engage in what I would call irrational behavior. So at first it was toilet paper that was running out. At some point people were running out of eggs and flour, right, because people were looking to potentially bake in order to weather the storm. They were maybe afraid that, you know, the stores would be running out of bread. And down the road at some point, stores actually started, online stores especially, started running out of hair clippers because I'm suspecting that people were uncertain about when hair salons or barber shops would be reopening. So they were stocking up on hair clippers in order to be able to cut their own hair. So this is what I really find interesting is the level of uncertainty that was associated with that crisis. And something that's really interesting to me is that there was a very few efforts on the part of governments worldwide to really inform people about this. And obviously, some aspects of it is simply not their fault. This is, again, a virus that was under study for the longest time, and I think it's still under study. And obviously, that has a huge impact on, on the, the, the amount of information that governments have and different companies have in order to to provide information to the public, but it's also about, you know, the fact that maybe governments could have been more upfront about, for example, mask wearing or all these other things. But it's not only governments. Let's take, for example, Emerson College. Emerson College uh, constantly had to readapt its approach in order to provide its students with the most accurate information regarding the crisis. And I would say that uncertainty is one of the key components of what a crisis is. It really drives behavior. And when you are certain about something, you are less likely to be engaging in irrational behavior. You'll be more less likely to be engaging in, in emotional behavior. Whereas if you are uncertain about certain things, then you are much more likely to engage in, in irrational and very emotional behavior. And this is sort of what we saw. And then this is not a, a U.S.-only issue, right? It was happening across the world. You saw people across the world behaving in different ways based on the, the, the information they had and also the information they did not have, which I find really interesting. Another thing that's really interesting to me, and it really leads to the level of information of the public, is that the, the role of misinformation as well. There's this really amazing study that came out out of Harvard a couple of days ago where they really talked about the fact that feelings of misinformation can also have an impact on behavior, right? So not only are people uh, looking for information, but because of the, you know, the fake news crisis that the world has been living in in the past few years, people are not even sure that the information they're getting is accurate information as well. And that is interesting, right? So you have, on one hand, people not, having, not being uncertain about things and sometimes having access to information. And even if they have access to their disinformation, they're not even sure of the validity of this information. And that's where one of the key elements, and especially for a school of communication, this is a very important aspect of it, is making sure that when you are in a crisis, you need to provide people with as much information as possible. And sometimes it's also good to hear for people to hear when you don't know that you don't know the answer to a question. Just mentioning this is still unknown, this is still something that's under study. This can actually inject a bit of certainty into a situation. Right, because people now know that this is an uncertain element or, you know, this is something that is not known and it, this can potentially make me, make it calm people down because they know that this is not known, but it's a, it is under study. Very interesting. So reducing uncertainty is the key element in crisis communication and overcoming information. Are there other elements that are integral to a solid crisis communication approach? 
Absolutely. Another really important element of crisis communication is obviously leadership. Having coherent and having constant leadership. Leadership that not only uh, you can speak, but that a leadership that will be constant in time. And that's a great example, especially in the United States. There are very few states during the COVID-19 health emergency. There were very few states where everybody was aligned at the local level, at the state level, as well as the national level. So, for example, something uh, the government would, the federal government would say, would not be aligned with what a state government would say. And then what the state government would say would not be aligned with what a local government would say, for example, a mayor. And more interesting, interestingly, if we see with, for example, the reopening of, uh, of the United States that started happening in late April, early May, we even saw at some point a patchwork of different guidelines. So one state operating in the one way, whereas the other state was operating in the other way. And then again, this sort of lack of cohesive leadership is fostering some uncertainty because people are really unsure what they should do when you, you are sitting on, on your couch, for example, and you're listening to a governor give some guidelines on how to behave. And then 40 or 50 minutes later, you watch a mayor giving a press conference and give completely different guidelines. And then you still on your couch, you watch another press conference an hour later, and then you see the president or the vice president coming on TV and giving a, uh, other guidelines that are not aligned with the guidelines that you heard previously. And that creates a really interesting environment where everybody is sort of confused. What should I do? What should I not do? The other element that's really important is, is the, the fact that the leadership needs to be trusted. The source of information needs to be trusted. And that's another key element of it. For example, I mean, obviously in the United States, there's a lot of distrust regarding the president, but there's a lot of distrust regarding governors and mayors as well. There's actually a really amazing Edelman survey that was, that's been uh, ongoing for the past three years called the uh, Edelman Trust Barometer. And it shows across the board that people simply do not trust government. In many Western-style democracies and many other countries as well, there's a distrust of governments. So even if your government is giving you guidelines on what to do, you are really not sure or you're not really trusting them. And that's a huge issue because governments should be the ones that are that are taking decisions in the interest of public good. And if the public is not trusting their decisions, then that's create, that creates a whole issue. The other element that's really interesting is obviously media organizations. Again, this Edelman report talks about the fact that media organizations are not necessarily trusted around the world. And that to me is interesting because when you want to hear information about a crisis, Oftentimes, people will reach for the, the remote or will reach for the radio or, you know, more recently, the podcast or blogs and they will be, or Twitter, and they will be looking for information. And these trusted news media organizations are no longer as trusted. And that's a huge issue because when you hear, for example, something coming on CNN or if you hear something coming on Fox and you start distrusting what the media is telling you, then it, it goes, we go back to the earlier situation where there's a lot of uncertainty. So it's really about trusted leadership, coherent leadership as well. And it's also about leadership that will get everybody on board. And that's something that was especially prevalent in the United States during COVID-19 health emergency. So really, one other element that's really important is really making sure that there's a control of public perception. And perception is one of the key elements of what a crisis is. Because the way in which a, a crisis is perceived varies from individual to individual. For example, this is something I heard from my home province of Quebec. My aunt is a, a, 
is somebody who's immunosuppressed. And obviously, she really cared to make sure that, you know, she was being careful with the COVID-19 crisis. So she self-isolated very early on. And she told me the story about how she, she had somebody come over and do some work. And obviously, um, she was very careful in the way in which she handed in the money. And that person just took the money and said, why won't you just give it to me in a, in a more usual way? Just hand me the money. And she did explain that, you know, with the virus and everything, we need to be careful. And that person proceeded to just sort of wipe the money on their face and think, this doesn't scare me. And this is something that's really interesting when it comes to crisis communication. It's also about controlling perception, making sure that, you know, everybody sees the crisis the same way. And that's where leadership kicks in. Because when you have a, a leader that is trusted by everybody, not trusted only because of political disposition, but trusted across the board, this will lead people to have the same perception that crisis is, and this will lead to have to a more cohesive response among the population about what the crisis is. And what you saw in the United States and in several other countries, let's be fair, is, is people perceiving the crisis differently because of their perception of the leadership, and that led to a, a very chaotic response to the crisis. So at the heart of this, leadership is a core element that without it, we're destined to have to contend with disinformation, confusing messages, and you know, underneath all of that is the basic distrust of government. So what's a leader to do, and, and how do they get their message out? How do they overcome disinformation, confusing messages, and the fact that there's a limited amount of trust? Well, I think one of the key elements is really cultivating leadership over a long period of time. You know, leadership is not something that, that will pop up one day. Uh, it's something that it's, it's a trust relationship that you build with members of the public. It's something that you cultivate over a long period of time. And this is where, for example, you know, in the United States, for good or bad reasons, there's a lot of distress regarding the federal government, and that really hampered the response of the public because people simply did not trust uh, the leadership or the trust, uh, the trust in the leadership was not necessarily based in competence. It was made mostly based on political dispositions. It was mostly based on personal perceptions. For example, Tony Fauci has been somebody who has been working for the government for decades. And, and obviously his competence is extremely deep when it comes to virus-related matters or, or infectious disease-related matters. And this is interesting is that a lot of people started to question the competence of Tony Fauci. Again, for good or bad reasons, they were questioning the competence of Tony Fauci. But their evaluation of the competence was not necessarily dictated by his competence in infectious disease. It was driven by a variety of different factors. And this is another thing that I find really interesting is, is the shift when it comes to perceptions of leadership and, and the perception of competence. For, again, for a long time, competence has always been driven, for example, by key elements, which is, for example, professional accomplishments, background and whatnot, but increasingly Competence is understood in different ways, and that is really shifting the way in which people are, are, are trusting sources of information and are ultimately reacting to a crisis. I'm wondering if emotions play a role here. We talked about Dr. Anthony Fauci and how people were questioning his competency. I'm wondering if that has to do with some of the rhetoric that came out that said, oh, perhaps his advice isn't that good. To me, it seemed it wasn't really based on science, more on politics and sort of loyalty to a particular political point of view. So do emotions play a role in crisis communications? And if so, how do you contend with that? 
Emotions can play a key role in crisis communication for a variety of, of reasons. Oftentimes when you're in a situation of crisis and you are emotionally rattled, obviously your emotions will, will trump your, your reason and you will uh, obviously be reacting in ways that are really driven by emotions. This is why you see, for example, when there's a really deep crisis, you see a lot of people behaving irrationally in response to crisis. So emotions is key, and oftentimes uh, this emotions, uh, these emotions are driven by the variety of different factors, uh, whether it's uh, people's in information intake, whether it's pe people's social environment, whether it's people's perception of leadership, but it also can be just personal dispositions. Obviously, personal dispositions have a huge impact on how emotions drive your behavior, and this is where it's really important. Crisis communication needs to provide some kind of a framework for these emotions to be under control in order for people to behave in ways that will be beneficial and that will ultimately lead to crisis resolution. Interesting. I'm wondering if the role of validation of emotions by a leader would offer them some form of credibility. Most recently, because of the recent riots relevant to police brutality, we've seen a, a variety of authorities coming out and validating the protesters' concerns, whether it's a police chief taking a knee in front of the protesters or some of our politicians who typically have been, well, let's just put it out there, very pro-police, very perhaps authoritarian in their approach to dissident, coming out and saying, this is wrong. Well, we haven't really seen that in the past. But in doing this, it appears to me as if they're validating everybody's opinion that this really is police brutality, and this does not represent who we should be as a people. If they had ignored that, I think it would have exacerbated the situation. So, you know, moving away from the plague, COVID-19, and looking yeah. at the current racial unrest due to police brutality, what is the role of emotions, what is the role of crisis communication to help bring some change and hopefully bring some social justice? Where does crisis communication fit into this? It's a great question. So the recent racial tensions in the United States that have always been there, but have been, you know, inflamed by recent events, really highlight that the role of crisis communication here. So what I find interesting is obviously a lot of people took to the street to show the, the unease with, with uh, the government response and with people's reaction uh, within the political sphere, people's reaction to the police brutality event. And what I really find interesting is that people's feelings were not acknowledged. People's concerns were not acknowledged, actually fostered the crisis. So there, there was a crisis in itself, but the fact that people's perception of the crisis was not acknowledged and was not addressed compounded the crisis. Again, this is something that I really want to emphasize in this is that crisis communication, as all, you know, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, crisis communication was, was much easier than today because back then people had the same information intake. I mean, people would be watching the same television programs. People would have access to the same information. And obviously this information would not necessarily be questioned. Uh, so what you saw in recent years, especially with the rise of social media in 2004 and with the diversification of the online environment in the last 16 years, is that you see that people are, are faced with an environment where they can actually make up their own mind and, and there's, you actually see a fragmentation of the public. So there's a wide range of perceptions. There's a wide range of information frameworks. For example, and I'll give you a, a very simple example, somebody watching CNN versus somebody watching Fox News, they will have a completely different understanding of what a crisis is, for example, because the coverage is very different. You know, because of political leanings, because of, of vantage points, 
the coverage of your crisis is completely different. If you add into this YouTube, if you add into this Twitter, if you add into this Facebook, you are faced with a public that has a variety of different interpretation of what a crisis is. It's actually quite astonishing that nowadays there's no base-level understanding of a crisis is. Going back to the COVID-19 health emergency, because this is, I think, a really interesting element. So there's been a lot of anti-confinement demonstrations across the United States, but also in Canada and also in other parts of the world. And what I find interesting is that people were coming to these anti-confinement demonstrations with completely different perceptions of what the problem was. For example, um, there's a lot of people, and I, I've seen some reports that, that a lot of people were concerned about confinement was actually a way to impose vaccination or to sort of prime people in getting vaccinations, and these vaccinations will be an attempt by the state to, to inject chips into the body, the human body, and be able to track people walking around. Other people actually, and this is something that I saw online, and other people said it was about the state home orders were, and, and the closing down of churches was about getting rid of religion. So it was a way for the state to try to get rid of religion, force people out of religion, prevent people from going to church. These are two examples among many examples of, of what is going on. And that one is what I find interesting is that for leaders now who are engaging in crisis communication, not only do you need to provide baseline information for everybody, but you also need to engage in communication and the communication approach in order to reach out to these different segments of the public and try to give them information that will be providing to context to what they're believing. And what I find really interesting, and this is something that really, really found interesting, is that uh, in the response to the crisis, for example, Dr. Tony Fauci actually went on these very, very specialized media channels. I know he did an Instagram Live. He went on blogs. He went on YouTube. He went, I, I think he did some other, uh, on the other platforms online. He also did regular media, so he really understood that people's information intake comes from a variety of different sources and you needed to reach out and engage with these pockets of audiences that are all over the place and that are looking for different things. Another really interesting thing is oftentimes people are, are go to media platforms not necessarily for the information that it provides, but the entertainment value that it provides. And this is why I think it's important for leaders when it comes to crisis communication, especially now, to consider the fact that the public is not homogenous. Uh, crafting a homogenous message will not necessarily resonate. Increasingly, you need to create messages that are still not in a position to each other, but these messages that are crafted to, to really be appealing to pockets of publics that have certain specificities and that are looking for a certain type of information coming their way. With that sort of line, Aristotle said, know thy audience. So if you're talking to one group, it's perhaps their Fox News patrons, and another group that's a CNN patron, and a group over here that's sort of an NPR. So three different mindsets, if you will create messaging that would more positively affect those specific groups in the words that they would understand. So addressing the cognitive biases and the confirmation biases that they would have in a certain manner so that you can affect how they understand things. That's correct, but I, I would actually push it even further. You were mentioning, for example, NPR and CNN and Fox News, but that is uh, becoming even more granular, right? Some people are watching very, very niche YouTube channels to get information. Others are relying on their friends. And, and that's another really important point. 
Information is oftentimes accessed in a two-step matter. This is sort of a process that's also driving fake news, but I don't want to get into this too much. But what I find interesting is that oftentimes people nowadays don't necessarily go to one media platform in order to acquire information. What they will do is, for example, in the morning they will wake up and, you know, especially for our students, and, and this is a call I always run in my class, the first thing that they do is they actually, when they wake up, is they reach out for their phone and they start scrolling through their timeline and see what's going on. And oftentimes, through their exploration of this timeline in the morning, they, they come across information that is impacting their perception of what go, is going on. And oftentimes, this information is not necessarily judged by the source of this information, but it's mostly judged by the validity of this, the credibility and validity of this information is judged based on who shared it. And that is something that I, that I find really interesting as well, is that people are not necessarily, the information intake is oftentimes shaped by their networks. Selecting information, not pushing information, and then people are exposed to this type of information. And that I find really interesting because it's really changing the game because now not only do you need to sort of figure out, okay, what is what information is out there, but it's also how are people accessing this information and how this is shaping their behavior. You can affect certain people through TV, others through radio, and from what I'm hearing, and perhaps it's generational, perhaps not, what messages they see in the various forms of social media. And I assume also the quantity, the reach and frequency of those messages in social media will have an impact on how a specific crisis is perceived. Is that an accurate interpretation? Oh, absolutely. And I'll give you, I'll go one further. I mean, uh, I've really been into, um, as a social media expert, I always need to be ahead of the curve in some ways. And I've recently really got into TikTok. And I was just amazed at the type of information that was released on TikTok regarding the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, you had tons of accounts of just people that were uh, filling themselves with a lab coat and some kind of a medical device and providing people with just updates on what's going on with the, the COVID-19 health emergency. And I was reading the comments a lot, a lot of these videos, and a lot of people were saying, oh, thank you, doctor, for providing us with an update on what is going on. And there was no way for people to verify, you know, is that person a doctor or not? From what I understand, they seem to be going on the fact that the person was wearing a, a white, you know, doctor vest. Therefore, they were a doctor. Being bombarded with information, being bombarded with these types of things, this is really shaping people's understanding of a crisis. And a lot of social media platforms out there have deployed a lot of efforts to try to steer people to sources of information that are credible. For example, uh, you probably heard about Facebook launching its own coronavirus platform in order to try to get people to have access to information that's been vetted by credible sources of information. For example, in the United States, they would be pointed towards a CDC information, whereas, for example, my home country of Canada, you could be directed to Health Canada, which is the equivalent of the CDC up north. So there's a lot of effort in trying to steer people to the right information, but a lot of people are simply seeking information that they truly, truly see as compatible with their interests, their preferences, and their objectives. This is an incredibly complex challenge to get the right words out, to affect people in a, the positive manner that you want to. Could you leave our audience with three takeaways relevant to crisis communication? Sure. The first point I would say is make sure that you provide, um, if you're a crisis communicator, make sure that you provide as much accurate information as possible. Obviously, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I think it's very, very important that you provide with the people with as much accurate information as possible. 
and what I mean accurate information, it can also be the fact that you're unaware of what is unaware of the situation. Uh, there's a lot of uh, crisis indicators out there that when they don't know something, they'll simply say, we don't know, we will check into it and we'll get back to you. So that's one of the first key elements of, of crisis communication. So avoid uncertainty as much as possible. The second point I would say is cultivate leadership. I think it's very important to cultivate leadership as much as possible. And this is something that needs to be done right away. As soon as a leader emerges, you need to cultivate this leadership and you need to make sure that this leadership becomes trusted and not only trusted by one segment of the public, you need to have a broad reach. You need to make sure that you're trusted across the board. And oftentimes it requires a bit of flexibility. Obviously, you know, there, there are segments of the audience that you don't necessarily want to engage, but I think it's important to engage all segments of the audiences because when a crisis will hit, if you want to mitigate the crisis as much as possible, you need to have a buy-in from all audiences. And the third point, and this is, it builds off my second point, is really not discounting any audiences and making sure that you engage with everybody as, as much as possible. So as I said, there's a fragmentation of audiences out there. So crisis communication is really about devising messages that will be able to hit and persuade all segments of the public. And, you know, I think, I think Dr. Tony Fauci did it really well, where he was really trying to engage with different audiences. I think at some point he gave a, uh, an interview to a popular blogger. He did an Instagram Live. He also went on traditional media. Uh, he also gave uh, interviews to very niche publications out there, and you've seen a lot of interviews coming out from niche publications. So I think it's really important to really make sure that you engage with, uh, with different audiences and you craft messages that will be of interest or that will be appealing to as many audiences as possible. We spoke with Dr. Vincent Renault about crisis communications. Dr. Renault is a professor at Emerson College. His area of research interest and publication include political communication and campaigning, protest politics, social media, research methods, political marketing, e-politics, and journalism. I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies Mark Brody. We had studio help from executive producer Lucas Poyser. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.